Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat Series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I am Rebecca Calajaris, Vice President of Marketing and Product Strategy at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. And today, I am extremely excited to be joined by Uli Applebaum, author of the best-selling and award-winning Brand Positioning Workbook, which has been described as one of the best books on brand positioning since Ray Trout introduced the concept. Uh, positioning is something just incredibly near and dear to my heart and near and dear to what we teach. And it's, spoiler alert for what we're going to talk about, super powerful and definitely I uh, something that everyone here listening to either should be intimately involved with today. And if they're not, then they need to they need to be going. So I'm extremely excited to have you on, Uli. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this very nice and very kind introduction. Absolutely. And for those who have not had the pleasure of meeting you before, can you give everyone a little bit of a background about who you are, what you're passionate about, and kind of how you got into the space you're in today? Of course, absolutely. Um, thanks for asking. So Uli Applebaum, I'm an independent brand strategist based in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. As you can hear, um, I'm German, uh, born in Germany, raised in Africa, in Europe, and uh, moved to the US 20 years ago. And very early in my, in my early university years, I discovered my passion for positioning. And a very cliche through the book of um, a recent trout, uh, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, that immediately got me interested and started my career in advertising agency, various advertising agencies, first in Europe, Eastern Europe, and then the US, and mainly in the account planning and strategy department. So I was always developing communication strategies. And for many clients, we also developed positioning platforms, positioning strategies, et cetera, et cetera. Over the last 20, 25 years, I've learned a lot of tips and tricks. And when I started my own business uh, now, what is it, eight years ago, I, I realized that there is really not a publicly available how-to guide on how to develop brand positioning platforms. So what I was looking for throughout my whole career, and I got maybe through proprietary training courses with the different agencies I was with, I never found something that was available to the broader public. So I decided to write it and decided to do that um, when COVID hit. It was a good time for me to um, add some extra time. So I started to focus on that and I launched it early last year. And really, it's called the Brand Positioning Workbook. So it's really not a new philosophy about positioning. So it's not like positioning 3.0 <laughs> version of Uli Applebaum or my take on it. It's really 
tried and true classic tricks to develop successful platforms to ideate enough ideas that are diverse and, and varied uh, to then come up with the most relevant solution. So the biggest compliment I get from my from the book is, it's not very long, it's like over 100 pages, but it's a no BS book. And that's right. exactly what I was trying to go for. Yeah, right to the point. Let's show them how it does. <laughs> I love that. Love it. Okay, so you mentioned that you're like an individual consultant that goes and helps companies. Mm-hmm. I, I suspect, maybe I'm wrong, do a lot of people come and be like, hey, Uli, we need help with positioning? Or do they come kind of with bigger problems that they're looking for you to solve? Like what? It really depends on the category. And I work with two group of clients. The first group is package good clients. And they usually come up with assignments such as, you know, our brand has been in decline for the last few years, or a new competitor is threatening us, or we are stagnating, or we're launching a new brand and we need it positioned. So that's usually with a business problem. And then the second sort of like bucket of clients I have is, and it started like five, six years ago, it's a lot of software companies in the B2B sector that cater to enterprise type customers. And that can be anything in cybersecurity, in asset management, in application development based on certain languages. And what they typically ask for, which is a different form of positioning, it's a messaging strategy, right? Mm. Is we have a new product in our portfolio. Um, We want to understand how do we best speak about this product to potential customers. It is technically a positioning, but they're more interested in the outcome, which is generally three, four, five, six messaging arguments that will appeal to uh, potential customers. If you summarize the whole thing, you have a positioning, but they look at it differently. My experience is when when you talk to them about positioning, they think it's like an esoteric exercise, Uh, but it's going to take a lot of time. Well, the messaging strategies, it's something I can use immediately on my website, in my collateral, in my online uh, messaging, etc. So it's just a perception thing, which I'm fine with. Call it messaging strategy or positioning. It's the same process I go through when I develop this. Absolutely. Because I mean, I think in your definition of positioning and, and ours too, it's, it is a very actionable piece, right? Mm-hmm. So I think to your point, that's why they're saying like, give me a messaging strategy, something I can definitely put in place. But for us, that's the whole thing. Yes. And I think... What's really interesting, like some people know they have a positioning problem, but a lot of them, like you said, come because like their brand stagnant or they're doing something new and it's not catching on, or maybe they know they're about to do something new. So there's a bigger problem that they're trying to solve that you're really helping to map out the solution may not be necessarily, well, if they came to you, they probably know at least some of the area, but the solution of positioning may not be as obvious to some as the link to the types of problems it solves. That is absolutely true. And and what I've noticed is the the positioning has something glamorous about it, right? It's sort of like the holy grail of strategy in a sense, but it also, for many people who are not familiar with it, it feels a bit esoteric, a bit abstract, sort of like a big thought that then I don't know what to do with. That is the wrong approach to positioning, to your point. If I look at a positioning and don't know exactly what to do with that or how that translates into you know, a campaign into a messaging element, you're doing something wrong. And I try to avoid doing that, basically. Yes, no, that's never going to happen any of us. So instead of doing things wrong, let's talk a little bit about how you do it right. What is the approach you take when you get a new client in and you're going to work on on the messaging strategy and the positioning? Great question. So my process now is proof, well, it's proven. I fine-tuned it over the last five years, and I'm focusing specifically on 
let's say, B2B companies, software companies, IT companies, and these type of things. So my, my first step is typically what I call the immersion phase, which is do a series of internal stakeholder interviews within the organization. And that is because, you know, talk to salespeople, uh, product engineers, customer support staff, obviously the marketing team, the CEO, the CFO, uh, chief group, whoever is there. And the objective here is really to get uh, as much as a coherent picture of the organization as possible, understand the different point of views, but frankly also understand where potential resistance might be within the organization. You know, salespeople, I'm a firm believer in having sales work very closely with marketing, uh, but sometimes there's sort of like a fake distinction between the two. But salespeople are always in the front line. They are talking to customers. They know a lot about customers. So these internal stakeholder interviews is usually very important. And parallel to that is we look at competition, right? Understand how they are positioned, how they communicate, what kind of products they have, how they speak about their products. And then once we have all that, we move into a phase, into a first phase of customer research. And that is typically with prospective customers and current customers. So the current customers is really to try to uncover, frankly, is what the stakeholders of the organization tell me also perceived as such by their customers? Um, so is there like, you know, because the positioning needs to be true to the experience customers have. So if you have a developer positioning and your current customer say that it has nothing to do with what you guys offer or how you, you know, how I experience you, you have a disconnect, which we try to avoid. And with potential customers, and we typically do that in one-on-one interviews, we look for two things, three things, actually. One is, what are the main pain points these customers have within the organization that might be relevant for the product? And the product, if it's cybersecurity, you know, what are the priorities? What stage in the cybersecurity life stage are there, et cetera, et cetera. So pain points is number one. And the reason for that is pain points will then be used in the second phase as a way to create relevance for the benefits of the product. Mm. So tying it to your pain points makes it more interesting to you. The second thing we look for is what are the corporate strategic priorities of the organization? And the rationale here is, frankly, if it's not on the radar of the board of director and aligned with the three or four core strategic priorities the organization has, the likelihood that this project will be funded and paid attention to is fairly low. Mm. So if I approach a potential customer, understand their pain point, understand how to translate my benefit to address the pain point in a way that makes sense to the board of director, you have a much better shot at convincing your customer to at least look into you further, obviously. And, you know, whether it's like if the whole strategic outlook of the customer is customer focused or security, Hmm. trying to understand how your little solution in the big ecosystem of your client helps address the customer focus point, you have a much better chance to sell. So we do this first round of research, get the pain point, understand the priorities, and then do use that input to to verbalize a bunch of messaging elements, so key benefits, how to speak about the product, what are the benefits that we can bring to life, and then we run this by a second round of focus groups, through a second round of focus group, where we basically validate this. So we understand the priorities of the benefits, and we understand what trigger words 
work and which sound like BS friendly. You know, sometimes like the, this is going to revolutionize the world of cybersecurity. <laughs> Everyone will throw up when they hear that. And it sounds obvious, right? But there are way more subtle way to yep. um, the ultimate blah, 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 or better than everything out there. Those are words which people push back on, which is exactly so. Right. We end up sometimes coining phrases that to us encompass exactly this much bigger story, right? You're like, that's what we mean when we say transformation, but you throw that's that right. out at a customer and they're like, I don't, I don't know what to mean. <laughs> and I like, oh, yeah. sometimes it's like a bummer because you're like, but I got really a- attached to that language. Uh, it's so clear in my head what that means, but absolutely. you know, we're not building these materials to speak to ourselves. We're absolutely. to do it to the customer. And I've learned you, that's it's so correct what you're saying. And I've learned that the trick is really to find the right line between between highlighting how you solve the problem, providing a hint of technical knowledge that shows, okay, those guys know what they're talking about without boring with technical details. And trying to really navigate in this fine line is the trick to positioning your brand properly and messaging it correctly. So that's a typical process. And sometimes instead of doing the second round of qualitative research, we quantify it. But the problem is, especially in, in technology, is recruiting these high profile customers is extremely expensive so you know getting 10 to 20 of those is feasible but that's already expensive getting 150 of them is horrendously expensive so that's why we tend to focus on a qualitative exploration and validation than rather than quantitative what kind of deliverable? So after, so first of all, absolutely, everybody listening, you need to you need to do the research both internally, which is going to help you understand the landscape internally and how to roll it out, right? How mm-hmm. to get people bought in. But 100%, you have to be talking to your market, to your audience, to potentials and figuring out what they're going to do. What kind of deliverable? After you do all this, you've got some great phrases. What is What is that strategy look like? What is the thing that you hand back to them? That depends on the scope of the project itself. So at, at the minimum, it's, a document summarizing the key insights we get out of the customer research because there's always a hunger for understanding how customers think, what their pain points are and stuff like that. Followed by, call it a strategy document, whether it's a a brand pyramid, a positioning statement, a list of the key selling points. So typically it's this type of document that is the deliverable. And and one thing I've learned is the, the truth is because a lot of these large organizations spend so much time with customers and potential customers, they have a lot of hypotheses. Mm. A lot of them are correct. What they don't know is which one are the most important one versus ah. the least. So there is no prioritization. So, you know, a sales guy who has a great insight from a customer, you know, shares it with the group and then the customer support guy says, oh yeah, and we have a, this other point of view or this other insight And they're both true. You just don't know which one is the most actionable from a strategic point of view. So what this type of research allows you to do is also to prioritize it. So you know that, yep, talking about it this way might be interesting down the funnel or Mm -hmm. once the key benefit has, or it's a great supportive benefit, support benefit. So it, it takes away the guesswork or hypotheses or opinions and turns it into actionable facts, basically. And so typically it's this type of documents that I, did, I deliver. So I don't do any creative execution or anything like that. But typically what comes out of this process is, and my final presentation typically include the CEO and the key stakeholders, also the ones I pulled in during the stakeholder interviews. And what this gives is all of a sudden clarity, right? It's, oh, great, we need to focus on these three aspects moving forward. 
And if they take that out and if they align, then I think I win because the clarity is one of the big things that the positioning provides, right? Or a messaging strategy provides. So you don't talk anymore about what are our benefits. You talk about, okay, how do we implement these benefits in our marketing, in our communication and these kind of things. I think it's super interesting there as well. Like you talked about, there's often you get sales material and it feels like they just threw up all the facts about their product at you. And I think you're right. Like they're all valid, but they need to be prioritized. They need to be filtered down. You need to be thinking about like maybe some segmentation and which ones you're throwing at me. I think that that is an area where, where you see, so I could see that your deliverable too gives you sort of a pyramid from two perspectives, right? There's the sort of elevator pitch for lack of a better word. We all know what that one was as And then as you go down the funnel, you get more information, but also it serves several different markets inside the organization, right? There are some people that need to understand the tip of the, of the pyramid and that's their alignment. And then there's some, as you're getting down on those execution teams, they need to be able to to see a lot deeper into your research and thinking because they're going to have to leverage it in so many different ways. They can't just use those same words, but that's, it's a really nice sort of ability to hit all those internal targets and allow them to prioritize that communication in the way they do externally. That is absolutely correct. And, and another way to, to look at it is some of these messages are consistent and relevant for the whole organization. Mm-hmm. And then some of these benefits are relevant for specific clients. So who would speak about those more? It's, let's say, the sales force when they have a client meeting. So you know, sometimes these statements, uh, you, you typically have the top ones that mm-hmm. everyone gravitates towards and finds as the most relevant at helping them solve their problem. But then something and then you have the bottom lines, the least interesting ones, because you either use the wrong word or the argument is just not relevant. But often in the middle you have arguments that fall in the middle of the road because they are highly relevant to 50% of the respondents you speak to and completely irrelevant to 50% of the other respondents you talk to. So you might be in a situation as a sales team where you are with a client who finds this middle benefit highly relevant. So there you can talk to them about that more in depth once you figure out they want to know about that, but you don't waste your time, you know, bombarding every client with all the the, the messaging elements. So there you can customize it and become way more specific in how you talk to them. But that is then not through communication. That is one-on-one interaction, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I also think the the nice thing about having that kind of North Star in, in writing is it gives you an opportunity to audit it going forward, right? Not like audit, how are we doing in, in implementing this framework? But also, you know, it's a place to keep checking because sometimes everyone gets really excited about what's going to be there now. And, and they're like, okay, let's make this change. But over time, the things start to spread, right? We're like, oh, I already yeah. said that I want to do something different. And this gives us a chance to come back and make sure we're still going against that positioning. And of course, there's also going to be a time in where the market may shift and you need to make sure that is still the right positioning. But, yeah. but having that sort of codification, I think, would be really key. That is a great point as well. It really helps you determine are the initiatives we are considering, are the partnerships we are considering, are the sponsorships we are considering, are they on strategy or not? And if they support and reinforce the brand positioning, they are. If they are not, they, they are not. And you're wasting money, basically. So you're absolutely correct. The way I look at it, Rebecca, is a brand positioning. So I look at brands as associations you have with an offering, right? And every brand has maybe three or four associations. If the brand is long and established, it has more. 
But if you look at it as sort of like in terms of brand association that you want to build, which is basically what a positioning is, then you mm -hmm. can literally say, okay, is this initiative reinforcing one of these three associations we're trying to build? And that makes it very easy to assess, or is it not? And if it's not, my recommendation is either it's, well, technically, if you've done your job properly, you have looked at all the options. So you shouldn't come, come up with a fourth association that no one has thought about coming out of the process, then you did something wrong. Um, yeah. But typically, if it doesn't reinforce one of the core associations you have defined, you should move away from it. Unless, as you said, the market changes significantly, a competitor comes in from left field and, and changes the dynamic of the market. But a good positioning should be good for three to five years, typically. So... Um, yeah. And I mean, I think it's a, it's another good point you brought up and something that we talk about a lot is that positioning is a true north, not just for your marketing and sales communications, right? I mean, it's, it's you said it's associations, it's partnerships. Do I want to do trade shows? Mm -hmm. It's also like, do we want to buy that product, right? Yeah. Do we want to buy that company? Uh, mergers and acquisitions, it's, it's, it's prioritizing where you're going to focus. If you understand yeah. your main promise, it really helps everybody prioritize throughout the organization. Absolutely. I think that's really key. And it also helps you when things go bad, right? A negative social media comment. Mm. If you have a clear sense of who you are and what you stand for, you know how to respond, what tone, what content, and this. So you know exactly how to respond when things go backwards a little bit, which is equally important not Absolutely. to mess up. But it's true too, even with sales losses, right? I mean, we all, none of us like to do loses, uh, loses, any, no, none of us like to have losses. Of course. Uh, but I think it also is important to take a look at the losses in terms of which ones are the tighter, like which ones were in our hotspot where we definitely shouldn't have lost. If we're losing a lot of those, that's bad. If in fact, we're losing things that really aren't great fits for us, that's yeah. a good thing yeah. and could be like an intentional piece. So it also helps us make sure we're, we're not panicking unnecessarily in that end as well. That is exactly right. And and where why you're losing, right? I've had a situation where I had a client where I've been working with them for many years. We position them, they have a tremendous positioning, and six years later they're still using the positioning. But the big problems they had is I did a whole onboarding analysis for them. So um, what happens when the sales guy and the clients or the customer sign the contract? It's handed over to an implementation mm. team. Yep. And this company specifically had massive internal issues because either the sales force overpromised or the implementation team said, oh, yeah, but we forgot to mention you also oh. need to buy that $200,000 package to implement the solution you just purchased for $2 million. So, from I'm super excited to utilize this new product or service, literally within a week, the net promoter score went from nine to three. You know, basically asking like, what the F is going on here? So then we had to rework the and rethink the implementation journey to try to, to optimize the process. But if you talk to customers and they would be unsatisfied, you'd have to understand the problem is not the positioning and what the brand stands for. The problem is how the brand delivers the positioning in the implementation. And that allows you to separate the two. And, and not, you know, go crazy immediately and say, we need to change everything. So uh, very important as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So one of the things about like an exercise like this, when the people bring you in or when you're doing your own positioning mm -hmm. is like we said, it can really help solve big, gnarly business problems. That's amazing. But it's sometimes then also difficult to measure success, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's not things. So talk a little bit about 
the kind of conversations you have with clients about how the kind of impact it will have and how you recommend you measure the success of an effort like this? So that's a great question too, because unfortunately you don't implement positioning overnight and it doesn't typically lead to, you know, a boost of sales in, in of 30% in like within a week of developing a new position. That, cool. that would be great, but unfortunately <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And then you have to separate it between positioning and the messaging um, aspect of positioning. So for positioning itself is, my first, and that's sort of like a criteria I use, success criteria, is if all the key constituents within the client organization have clarity and a united point of view on what the brand and the company stands for, that is for me the first success mm. criteria. Yep. And it sounds obvious and it sounds easy, but my, my experience is literally in nine out of 10 cases and clients I talk to, Internally, it is not clear that everyone is aligned on, you know, what the real point of difference of the brand is, what the real benefit and the value of the brand is. It, there's always over overlapping, but it's never consistent. So mm -hmm. that is number one. Number two is when you, the sales force, if they feel energized, because I don't do that directly, but often the positioning statements and the messaging strategies, as you mentioned earlier, gets translated into sales decks, right? If the sales force feels, feels energized about this messaging and starts to give you feedback of first customer conversation based on this new language and this new positioning, you have a second check that things are, are going well and it's working. And then the organization typically needs a bit of time to change its the language on, if, on its website, its collateral, its messaging and all these kind of things. That usually takes a while where it's difficult to measure success, but then ultimately it's business success, right? It's customer acquisition, it's growth, it's all these kind of things or yeah, these kind of metrics which usually kick in several years, two, three years after you've, you've implemented the message, the positioning. If you look at it from a messaging, then you can immediately go and test online messaging, right? You can, you can check, you know, if you have white papers that have a title that is now tied back to the positioning, if you have, you know, an online campaign that tries to recruit people to or capture names, or get, then you can immediately measure the impact of your messaging that is derived from your positioning in a much shorter time period. And then you can see whether it's click-through rate, download rate, and stuff like that. But the real positioning impact typically will take you a couple of years until it grabs in the market, it's accepted and adopted. That's another point, right, is especially in IT or in many categories, you have like third parties like Gartner that are extremely influential in, in helping customers select software providers, right? The, the Gartner Magic Quadrant is sort of like the first stop of most executive buyers when looking at at providers in specific verticals. So you have to convince them as well, right, mm -hmm. about your new positioning. And they have to buy it and classify you the way you present yourself to them as opposed to the way they want to, to classify you. So those are all things then that roll out. Sorry, very long answer to your question. Oh, um, <laughs> it takes time. Yes, it does take time. And there's lots of different, as you said, lots of different variables that would make it take a different amount of time. So we talked about positioning, why it's important, what kind of advantages it can do, how you would approach it, how you might measure its success. Mm -hmm. uh, we hinted at this earlier. I can speak for myself. I have made mistakes in this area before, and I know that you've probably made them, and I know you've definitely seen them. 
mm-hmm. with clients. So let's talk a little bit about those. Let's let's save some heartache for our listeners and talk a little bit about those pitfalls. And if one person avoids those that we did, <laughs> I will feel very good about that. So, <laughs> um, actually, I think I've made I've been doing this for so long. I think I've made every single mistake in the book, <laughs> um, which makes me very experienced. Um, and it really starts with basics, right? Is thinking you need to position a brand without understanding who your customer is and what problem you're trying to solve. So you don't have a stake in the in the ground that says, this is what we need to tackle. The second problem I often see is also in the B2B world, but is that more even in the world of uh, packaged goods, is a focus on the consumer as opposed to a focus on the human being behind the consumer. Mm, yeah. And what I mean with that is, you know, I may work on a project, several hundred thousand dollars with a lot of really smart people thinking about how to position a brand of toothpaste, right? And we obsess about that literally for three months, 24-7. And then I say, okay, the way to convince Rebecca is, and Rebecca has a life, you know, you go about your life, you have, and maybe if you're lucky, once a week for a second, you think about your toothpaste, probably right before you go and purchase because your tube is empty. So focusing on the human behind the consumer, if that makes sense, is a very, opens the way you look at your problem. You know, how am I fitting in the overall world of my customer, even in the B2B world, you know, how how big of an issue is that in the world of issues my customer is facing? Am I at the top of his priority or am I somewhere at the bottom? The reality is you're probably somewhere at the bottom half of it. So focusing on your consumer, the human behind the consumer is sort of like number three. Number four is trying to develop a positioning statement in in a silo. Mm. Um, and then I said earlier, I tried to reach in my stakeholder interviews to as many people as, as possible. The reason is to understand the different perspective, to get buy-in from those different people, because you need the buy-in for the implementation, right? And the worst thing you can do is you can say, okay, Rebecca and, and Willie, we're going to you know, disappear for three weeks, work on something on our own that's going to be brilliant, and then go back to the organization and say, hey, voila, here, here's your solution, go and implement it. 90% of the people will say, thanks, but no thanks, it doesn't work for me. Right. Um, yeah. The so, magic box solution is, is neither going to give you the best answer or the best buy-in. Correct. Sorry for that. I think my dog is here in the background. I don't know how much you hear him. But, well, if um, you can hear the dog is vehemently agreeing with Uli <laughs> on this. Uh, and what you couldn't, you couldn't hear earlier is my cat walked by in the middle as well. And so there was just this like random cat tail. So this is very animalistic over here. <laughs> So, and, and another big one is also, you know, as I see that especially in the Midwest where everyone is so agreeable, is to develop a positioning platform that satisfies everyone. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, boss, you want to add something about how great our customer service is? Let's throw that in there as well, you know. So these sort of like uh, committees are not good at coming up with positioning platforms. You need an idea. You need a clear. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why what I resist a bit. A lot of management consulting firm, they came up with this word value proposition, right? Mm-hmm. And the value proposition is really everything thrown in the mix, <laughs> worded in a nice way. You know, you want to be the partner with the best product and the best service at the best value for money that saves the world in addition to that and makes your partner significant other head. You know, you can't work with that. It needs to be an idea. It needs to be a thought. So those are sort of like four or five of the top biggest mistakes to avoid 
if you want to implement a, a positioning platform successfully, develop it and, and implement it successfully. And I've made those mistakes over and over until I realized, oh, maybe I need to change my approach. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> we were talking when we did the prep call, I remember saying like the worst mistakes are the ones I've made before. And it's like, man, I should have learned this lesson last time. I know that this was wrong. <laughs> and I think the human behind the consumer I think we think about it a lot with packaged goods, but I think it's so true. I think people fall into this, this rut with B2B now that they just yeah. like, you know, Bob didn't buy it. Acme corporation did like, no, Bob did. Bob has yeah. like personal problems and reasons he bought it. And we, we often really dismiss that I think in, in B2B in particular, but so. But that is exactly, let me give you a quick example. If you don't mind, if we still have oh, a minute is oh, a client approached me not too long ago. They had developed a customer journey, B2B. So it's a package good companies, but that was also selling its product, food products to university restaurants. And that's a multi-billion dollar business as well. Yeah. And they had developed this really sophisticated customer journey, very smart, 170 pages that no one understood and no one was using. Um, so they didn't know what to do with that. And so they asked me to look at it and to help them sort of like make it more actionable. And so what I did is, again, internal stakeholder interviews, but then I talked to some of the chefs working in those kitchens. And what really came out is those are professional chefs that pride themselves. What they want is they want to talk to other chefs, mm. um, not a salesperson that just had, you know, makes checks on, a, on an order list. They're proud of their kitchens. Nothing makes them more excited than you know, having a salesperson that used to be a chef or that still is a chef and show them the kitchen, how it works and this kind of. So we boil down these 160 pages into 20 pages. But the biggest implication was, you know, talk to the chefs within those kitchen, talk to them as chef, change the structure and the, the makeup of mm. your sales organization. Those are not sales agents or sales reps, hire chefs. Um, yeah. to go and engage these people. And it's intangible, right? Because it's an ego, because then you have the pricing and budgeting issue and the quality of the product issues. But the thing is, if you, Rebecca, as a chef, proud chef, talk to me, Uli, as another chef, we'll agree on price, we'll agree on quantity, we'll agree on quality, we'll agree on recipe and all these kind of things mm -hmm. because we have this connection. If you look down at me as RG, I'm just another sales agent that's trying to push, you know, I don't know, 500 gallons of soup you're going to look down at me and ignore me and then give me the oh yeah too expensive or oh, i'm not interested right now uh, spiel. it's a level so, of trust right that's exactly and right you can say the same words and it's very frustrating if you're a salesperson you're like but i said that it's like mm, it doesn't matter yeah and that yeah. is uh, that is exactly right trust that you build by understand what the triggers are at your customers right and what i've noticed in in technology you also have highly sophisticated customer journeys but what really the core mechanism is, is really check Gartner to see the magic quadrant, who are the top players. Then step number two, reach out to my buddies that work in the IT department in other companies. Hey, who would you recommend in cybersecurity? Or who would you recommend in Java app development? Um, and with these two information, they're boiled down already the, the list of potential candidates so that by the time they reach out to you and say, hey, a cybersecurity software provider, I'd like to talk to you, they've looked at you already, they've researched you, they they've know exactly what your strengths and weaknesses are. So if you come in there and say, oh, let me give you my spiel and my generic pitch, 
Never, you're going to lose them right away. So understanding where they are and what their triggers are and what their perception of you is and might be helps you tremendously when you engage with them. Absolutely. And I think it's it's true more and more every day that they've already done so much research and so many yes. things. It's also one of the reasons the positioning is so important because they're getting a numerous amount of touch points yes. before they touch you. That's right? exactly right. So the, the more you have a stronger positioning, the more that kind of seeps through everything, the more so, they're going to be like, oh, yes, that's what I've heard. And not yeah. like, oh, well, you're really different than I was expecting. <laughs> that's the worst right. thing that can happen to you. And right. That's why we also, as I said earlier, talk to current customers. Because there's nothing wrong to say, oh, yeah, we are seen as the leader on innovation and technology. And your potential customer says, well, I talked to a lot of buddies. They really think you guys suck and <laughs> uh, need to need to get your act together. But you are cheap. So that's why I'm talking to you. So right. what a co- coherence in, in the feedback your customers are getting. Absolutely. All right. We talked a lot about a lot of different things today. Some of my very favorite topics, Uli. <laughs> if you were going to have people do two things differently tomorrow, based on what we talked about today, what would it be? So it's going to sound extremely simple, right? But I would take a sheet of paper and write down on, on the left side, what are the three or four brand associations your consumers has with your offering or with your product, if you're focusing mm-hmm. on the product? What are the three or four associations customers have? And it's not a list of 15 wish list items of what I think my consumer would, would, would see me. It's literally the three or four you have. And then compare that to your competitors. And first, what you're going to see is you're not very differentiating. But then on the right side of the sheet of paper, write down the two or three association you wish your customers would have that would make you more appealing or more interesting. So it's really, again, coming back to these association bubbles. And you'll see you'll have three or four on the left. You'll have three or four on the right that are slightly different. And if you have that, and it it sounds so simple, but it leads to such fundamental conversations within my client, with my clients when I show that to them. And what it also does, it allows you to really understand what is it I need to prioritize and focus on. You know, is my tone, the tone of my brand personality quirky or you know funny and witty who cares you know what i mean it it Mm -hmm. prioritize what you need to focus on and once you have that then you can look at your initiatives in your pipeline and as i said earlier look at them and say would they reinforce my desired brand associations or not and if yes great if not do i need to rethink them to reinforce them and the reason I'm, I'm using this example is because for me, the brand positioning is really the sum of the desired associations you want to create with your brand. That's really what a positioning statement is. So just break it down. What are the associations I have today? What are the ones you want tomorrow? And how do I get there, basically? And as I said, probably uh, your listeners will be rolling their eyes right now. I challenge <laughs> you. I challenge you. Do it. Uh, maybe with a colleague and see what you come up with and what ahas you get coming up with this very simple visual representation of your brand. I think it's a great idea. I think it's one of those that sounds simple, but it's really powerful and sounds simple, but will be surprising. And so I hope everyone does does that and then comes and tells us and be like, oh, you were right. Yes, and please send them to me so I can look at them as well and uh, see what you came up with. All right. Thank you, Uli, for joining us today and sharing your experience and insights. It's been a pleasure. It was a delight to be a great interviewer. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I really appreciate that. Excellent. And if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? 
The best way is to probably hook me, look look me up on uh, on LinkedIn, Uli Applebaum, or frankly, you Google me, you'll, I'll pop up everywhere, either because of the book or because of my writings and these kind of things. But the, the best place is reach out on LinkedIn. I always enjoy hearing from people as long as they don't sell me the latest magical uh, <laughs> sales generation platform. Oh, you get um, those too, huh? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, as long as you don't try to sell me those, I'm always very open to connect and interact with people. And I have a lot of people who reach out to me too and just have a question, you know, saying, hey, this is the problem I have. What would you do? And I'm happy to spend the time on it if it's not two months of, of work, obviously. I mean, it's something you're obviously passionate about. Um, yes. And so it's it's hard to sometimes get us not to talk about the things. That's sure exactly that right. We want to talk about, so. <laughs> I'm I'm totally, very much again. Thank you for coming. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career.